Welcome back to Three Decades of Tragedy, History of the Thirty Years' War. So last time I covered Hessen Castle once again, who fought against the advance of the Empire, moving into East Frisia under the support of the Dutch, the widow of Wilhelm acting as the leader of the forces once he died, and their whole connections with France. And secondarily, I covered the last gasp of the Palatine, who lost to the Imperial forces once again, Karl Ludwig fleeing to the Netherlands after getting crushed, by the Imperials. This had a secondary effect of reducing the amount of English and Scottish mercenaries and forces available, and the islands would soon be caught up in civil wars and their own conflicts, which would take them out of constant politics for at least a decade or more. But with that covered, let's get started. The Imperials saw that negotiations with Sweden were getting nowhere once again, so they decided to push them off the continent with a dedicated assault. And it seems the Imperials were focused on the Swedes, making them the priority over the French. Gallus gathered an army of 20,000, the main field army of the Imperials, and joined around 10,000 men at Pretzek in June 1637, which was, dam- which, which was made up of the damaged Imperial Saxon forces. Saxon units at Magdeburg and Wittenberg then isolated Benares 14,000 men at Torgau. Gallus then moved to surround the Swedish forces, but Benares managed to escape after giving around 300,000 liters of wine to his men, burning his baggage so that they would use the transports to move faster. This was a smart move, as getting the army out was a better decision, as supplies could be replaced but meant not as much, and other armies had tried to save the baggage on retreat, but that ended up bad, and the army was caught and destroyed or captured. It still would create issues short term, but the army was alive, Though the situation wasn't good, as it seems the Imperials were more well-organized and well-disciplined at this point, or at least for this assault. Benair couldn't go north directly, as he was cut off by Brandenburg's forces, so he headed northeast through Juderbog and Lubin to the Oder. But Gallus could tell where he was going, or could guess from his movements, and sent forces to Custrin to try to cut him off and surround the Swedes. Benair sent the wives of the officers, including his own, to the Polish frontier, along with the remaining baggage, and took the rest of his army west, south of Frankfurt. They could get there faster and safer, and his army would draw the attention to them. Once he reached south of Frankfurt, he then marched north to meet more Swedish forces at, at Ederswald, getting around 5,000 reinforcements. He lost around 4,000 men from a combination of injuries, disease, and desertion, but the key fact was that the army was intact, which was the important thing for the Swedes. Again, losing their main field army would have been a major blow. However, the issue was the Swedish holdings in Germany were weak at the moment, as they only had around 9,000 men in Pomerania and only 1,000 men in Mecklenburg. Pay was bad or non-existent, and morale was low, so Gallus swept through Swedish territory, retaking many towns and fortresses, regaining places like Landsberg and Gartz. Benair had little he could do to this, and the morale that had been raised by the Battle of Wittstock kind of fell off, as this was not looking good. And it really didn't look good or wasn't good for the Swedes, and it's kind of a low point at this point in the war, as the Imperials seem to be on the advantage at this point, although we will cover in a little bit that things weren't as they seemed. If things got even worse, worse terms could be imposed on the Swedes for the war, and the Swedes didn't want that. Oxenstierna even reduced his demands in the face of this, asking just for the Baltic ports for 15 years, while Sweden paid 3 million dollars by the Germans. You know, the whole thing we talked about with Protestant Germans were going to pay off the Swedes because they were the one that caused this, that whole complicated mess. Yeah, those Germans. The constitutional changes were abandoned, showing that Oxenstierna realized he had no way to ensure that term could be done, if it ever could have worked, and 
he still did want amnesty for all the allies that supported Sweden, and those excluded from the Peace of Prague, so there would be no bad blood by the end of this. Because again, people weren't trying to conquer the empire, they just wanted a slice. Sweden was even prepared to allow Franz Albrecht to be an intermediary, a despised and detested noble among the Swedes and their allies. I will hold a comment back for a little bit, as it sounds like what you think it is if you've been paying attention to the podcast, but these terms seem to be more fair at least. Ferdinand sent an envoy to discuss peace by January of 1638 in Hamburg, and Gallus, among others, were optimistic, many people thinking this could end the war, or at least that this was a good time for Sweden to peace out. But like every other negotiation in this war, Sweden was only delaying the inevitable with the talks, trying to get time to muster more forces and, re- and reorganize their army. Sweden claimed the Imperials weren't willing to negotiate over the Palatine and the Bohemian exiles, which was effectively nothing at this point for either, but allowed Sweden to hold on to negotiations and to at least save face and say, hey, we're trying to negotiate in good faith, even if they really weren't. Even though, you know, the Bohemian question and the whole thing about the Palestine was done at this point. There's no effect, and like we covered a long while ago, Bohemia had been carved up by the nobility and many non- what we call Czech people today, or Bohemians at this point, did not control the land. They were outsiders. But Sweden was holding out, as they really didn't care about this topic, they only wanted to delay so they could make an agreement with France. As both sides were realizing they needed each other if they wanted to back the Imperials. France needed Sweden to keep pressure on the Empire, so the two Habsburg empires, Spain and the HRE, couldn't combine their forces together. We do know there were many internal issues among the Spanish and the Imperials, but remember, the Swedes and French didn't necessarily know that, even if they might have suspected stuff. We know 2020, but they didn't know back then. France and Sweden created a new agreement in Hamburg on March 15, 1638. The terms were that Sweden would get 400,000 riksdaler a year for three more years, and Sweden would not be involved in issues between Spain and France. The French and the Dutch signed a similar agreement after this, adding that the Netherlands wouldn't make a separate peace with Spain, Sweden only required to consult with France if they wanted to make peace. So, Sweden was still a more senior partner compared to the Dutch, you know, the Dutch were separate, and separating wars is annoying when you start getting down the details. Like, I think the whole Dutch and Spanish war would take its own podcast to cover, or like YouTube videos or something to that effect. I couldn't cover it here in any detail. These terms did seem to be realistic, and the Swedes, Dutch, and French were all caught a bit on the back for the moment, so they needed to work even more closely than ever to push back the surging imperial forces more on the Swedish and French front than the Dutch front, but it wasn't like the Protestant forces, or I say Protestant, not really appropriate anymore, but the French and Swedish forces were, with more resources, the Swedes were back in a better position, sending 14,000 more conscripts and and 180,000 dollars by June 1638, on top of three more ships loaded with new uniforms, which, again, boosting morale, giving troops a bit more comfort, that whole thing, and they could also pay their men more. Gallus was only able to muster on 15,000 men once the new period came in to get troops, and had to extend a cordon around Pomerania trying to contain the Swedes, much like how it was back in 1630 when the Swedes had landed and were trying to make progress. The Saxons were busy blockading Erfurt, and while Gallus did receive 8,500 Brandenburgers, Brandenburgers in reinforcements, they were poorly organized and led by men who were little better than gangsters. So, not the men you necessarily wanted. The forces of Brandenburg were significant from the city itself, as they wanted to claim Pomerania, as they had a claim to it since the death of the Duke. And Brandenburg had become a militant under the leadership of Count Schwarzburg, who reorganized the army after being given command in December 1638. That would create its own issues, as two major officers defected, one to the Gulefs and the other to Sweden, reducing the effective forces to 6,000, making them unable to strike out effectively. This weakening of imperial forces allowed Sweden to break the cordon by recapturing Garz and Mecklenburg by October 
state. Gaius retreated over the Elbe, plundering Brandenburg, their ally, and sending parts of his army to Silesia and Bohemia to reduce the supply issues they were having. The land was thoroughly devastated, and that was actually the reason why trying to crack the land was impossible, because there wasn't anything to scavenge, any food to eat, so it was hard to assault through it. He didn't have enough men, so he was kind of left in a position where he couldn't attack, and the Swedes couldn't wait up and get reinforcements and eventually an attack, which would not put the advantage on the Imperials. And as I'm about to cover in the next section, not only would the Imperials not get another chance to assault the Swedes like this, but they were having their money problems, as behind-the-scenes stuff, like normal. So once again, rearing his ugly head was finances. We talked about this a long time ago when Wallenstein re reorganized the army, and how he changed how it was funded, which became more centralized based on taxes and all that sort of deal. And now, this whole issue is coming back to a head. The single pool of funding for the army wasn't working as the special commands were raising their own money at this point, and even the funds coming from taxes weren't keeping up with the debt being accrued. At best, they were getting around 8 million dollars a year, but that was under ideal circumstances, which was not happening. Gallus complained that Hamburg, Bremen, and Lübeck were funding the enemy but not building his army, which is likely at this point, as some cities were playing neutral or kind of, once again, trying to play both sides, you know, not get raided or destroyed, and to try to benefit the most. The most common payers of this tax were former Catholic League members who were firmly on the side of the Emperor at this point. They were not going to side with the French or the Swedes at this point at all. It made sense that this whole thing was happening as many weren't paying the full share as enforcing it would be hard and others were supporting the Swedes or France, especially among the more neutral areas and in Western Germany or Western HRE. There had been a grant extending 20 Roman months, which as a reminder, is an amount of money, not time. It was basically enough money to fund a set group of men. And usually it was paid each month, but it was more marked off as that. The Emperor still did require regents to support units of special commands, you know, the ones he was giving independent command to, that he was dividing up, well, the previous emperor and then the current one. So that was creating issues once again, as it was basically forcing both armies to go back to the old way. The main effect of this was making it hard to tell whether the money was going to the official war fund or the local commanders demanding to supply an army, as remember, this is commanders would walk in and say, hey, pay up, we need you to pay and support us, which would bring extra hardship on an already joined economy, and there's complaints from the Franconians, who withheld the main taxes as they claimed they were paying two to five times the amount they owed in Roman months, just supporting the local armies in their land. They also asked for their pay to be reduced of the army, to improve army discipline and allow the Kree's officials, Kree's being local representative councils, that sort of thing, to monitor the transit of units in their lands. Ferdinand, hearing these complaints, worked with the Kree's on a smaller, more local level, instead of the big imperial states when the 120 Roman grant expired in November 1638 and was up for renewal. Saxony and Brandenburg supported the same agreement, along with Westphalia, as they were going to be the major recipients of the money. However, Franconia didn't agree to support it, saying they were already supporting their fair share with the main army in their lands, on top of garrisons, so adding more money that would just be extra strain in their economy. So the Emperor, trying to reduce the strain on them, kept only the main Hasburg forces in their lands, Maximilian having to keep his forces in Bavaria and Swabia. This did seem like a fair move by the Emperor to reduce political strain, but again, money is still an issue and the centralized payment system is not really working out anymore. Money wasn't the only issue here, though, as the numbers of the army was also going down. The army, which was imagined by the War Council to be around 80,000, was actually a little over 100,000 at its height, 1635, which I did cover in the episode going over Wallenstein's reforms, but I also mentioned it was expensive to maintain and required all the wheels to work properly, and a drag-out war just gets more and more expensive. And as the systems broke down, the numbers began to drop, the total of the Imperial Army at this point around 73,000 at the start of 1638. They only planned to gather around 10,000 more men that year, though the battles through 1637 and 1638 had done a number of 
damage to those armies and replenishing them. Gallus, in the primary army being in Saxony during a good chunk of that year in the start of 1638, also hurt the numbers as they reduced the forces on the Upper Rhine, depleting the regiments there. Footmen only earned 200. Remember, these are supposed to be like a thousand men regiments. It is 20% at best for some of these units. That's not good. It is unrealistic to expect all these units to be at full strength at all times, but this is severely under strength. They should have way more, and this would hurt morale, discipline, everything. They were also in poor condition. Their discipline was low, which was probably affected by the lack of reliable pay once again, and many of the officers were sick, and the men often relied on plundering to sustain themselves, which was supposed to be dealt with by the centralized pay system. So once again, back to the old issue, which the central pay system was supposed to deal with. But once again, the people were not in charge, or the right people weren't in charge to deal with it. Maximilian did see these issues along the Rhine, and moved his men to, to less used areas in Upper Swabia, Wurttemberg, and Donauwerth. This allowed his army to stay in better shape, having more discipline, better and reliable pay, and his units maintained 800 to 1,000 men each, infiltrating cavalry alike. And this would roughly stay consistent throughout the war, as it only really started getting bad once the war ended. It was clear the condition of the region's forces relied on how well the region could support the soldier and how well their commander could organize and pay their men, which was sometimes in their control and other times out of it. So some regions were just so devastated they couldn't do anything. You couldn't get as many men, money was harder, more plundering, which probably didn't help in the long term. And this damage to the army caused many units to combine to act as a tactical force, which resulted in more expensive units to maintain, which the whole idea of smaller regiments was to reduce the overall cost to maintain them. The officers got more pay they survived more often than their men, which put a strain on the army, and the War Council did plan on formally creating larger units using the understrength ones by November 1638, which was probably a necessity if more expensive. But there was still the issue of manpower, as it was estimated there was only around 29 to 30,000 men left in the two main armies along the Rhine and in Galluses. And the planned numbers in 1639 was around 59,000, which showed how well or how bad, more accurately, recruitment and funding was going. So once again, both sides were having issues, but France had the manpower and money the Imperials did not, even though, again, they're going heavily to debt to do it. Sweden did have a low population count compared to the other countries, but they had men who were being trained professionally and were prepared to join the war. I mean, conscription, so a bit of force, but they were being trained. They probably still had manpower issues, but combined with France, the veteran forces could be used effectively against the Imperials, especially with new money that was going to their coffers. But every country was running themselves dry with each year this war would go on, and this is going to hurt their economy in the long run. But that's it for this week, and next week we'll cover the Battle of Rheinfelden as armies clash once again. I want to thank you all for listening. Social media links will be in the description box or on the links themselves. You can email me at 3DECOT at gmail.com. A reminder that I have a Patreon. Thank those who support me. Interview and spread the word, and I'll see you guys next time. <laughs>